0: Chapter twenty nine of Memoir of Washington Irving by Charles Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Greg Giordano. Chapter twenty nine. In October, eighteen thirty six, Mr. Irving put to press his volume, Astoria a work which he had been induced to undertake at the solicitation of the millionaire John Jacob Astor. Footnote Mr. Astor was a native of Germany, born in 1763, and when twenty years old emigrated to this country and engaged in the fur trade, establishing himself in New York. He displayed great skill in business and prospered to such an extent that he was soon able to export furs abroad in his own ships, bringing back foreign produce for the New York market. While engaged extensively in the fur trade, he also made large purchases of real estate in New York, which advanced greatly on his hands. At his death, he was worth $20 million. In his lifetime, and at his death, mr astor made many liberal donations for benevolent objects but his principal beneficence was the establishment of the library which bears his name this library is already one of the largest in the country and its accommodations and volumes have been largely increased since his death by the liberality of his son w b astor esquire the library buildings are sufficiently ample to contain two hundred thousand volumes, and will soon be full. End of footnote. This book relates to Mr. Astor's settlement of a colony, which he had established at the mouth of the Columbia River, and the plan of the great capitalist was to secure to himself, by this volume, the reputation of having originated the enterprise, and founded the colony, which was, quote, likely to have such important results in the history of commerce and colonization. Irving, from the press of other literary engagements, was reluctant to undertake the work, but having enlisted the cooperation of his nephew, Mr. Pierre M. Irving, who was to arrange the principal materials to be afterward finished and embellished by his uncle, the work was duly prosecuted and executed to the entire satisfaction of Mr. Astor, as well as to the gratification and warm approval of the public of Astoria, the North American Review remarks that quote, the whole work bears the impress of Mr. Irving's taste. A great variety of somewhat discordant materials is brought into a consistent whole in which the parts have a due reference to each other, and some sketches of life and traits of humor, come fresh from the pen of Geoffrey Crayon. Quote. Quote, I have, says Sidney Smith, read Astoria with great pleasure. It is a book to put in your library, as an entertaining, well-written, very well-written account of savage life on a most extensive scale. Quote. Quote, the most finished narrative, says the London spectator, that ever was written, whether with regard to plan or execution, the arrangement has all the art of fiction, yet without any sacrifice of truth or exactness. The composition we are inclined to rate is the chef d'oeuvre of Washington Irving. End quote. The climate of the country west of the Rocky Mountains is described as follows. Quote, a remarkable fact characteristic of the country west of the rocky mountains is the mildness and equability of the climate that great mountain barrier seems to divide the continent into different climates even in the same degrees of latitude the rigorous winters and sultry summers and all the capricious irregularities of temperature prevalent on the atlantic side of the mountains are but little felt on their western declivities the countries between them and the pacific are blessed with milder and steadier temperature resembling the climates of parallel latitudes in europe in the plains and valleys but little snow falls throughout the winter and usually melts while falling it rarely lies on the ground more than two days at a time except on the summits of the mountains the winters are rainy rather than cold the rains for five months from the middle of october TO THE MIDDLE OF MARCH, ARE ALMOST INCESSANT, AND OFTEN ACCOMPANIED BY TREMENDOUS THUNDER AND LIGHTNING. THE WINDS PREVALENT AT THIS SEASON ARE FROM THE SOUTH AND SOUTHEAST, WHICH USUALLY BRING RAIN. THOSE from THE NORTH TO THE SOUTHWEST ARE THE HARBINGERS OF FAIR WEATHER AND A CLEAR SKY. THE RESIDUE OF THE YEAR, FROM THE MIDDLE OF MARCH TO THE MIDDLE OF OCTOBER, AN INTERVAL OF SEVEN MONTHS, IS SERENE AND DELIGHTFUL. There is scarcely any rain throughout this time, yet the face of the country is kept fresh and verdant by nightly dews and occasionally by humid fogs in the mornings. These are not considered prejudicial to health, since both the natives and the whites sleep in the open air with perfect impunity. While this equable and bland temperature prevails throughout the lower country, the peaks and ridges of the vast mountains by which it is dominated are covered with perpetual snow this renders them discernible at a great distance shining at times like bright summer clouds at other times assuming the most aerial tints and always forming brilliant and striking features in the vast landscape the mild temperature prevalent throughout the country is attributed by some to the succession of winds from the pacific ocean extending from latitude twenty degrees to at least fifty degrees north these temper the heat of summer, so that in the shade no one is incommoded by perspiration. They also soften the rigors of winter, and produce such a moderation in the climate that the inhabitants can wear the same dress throughout the year. End quote. A party traversing the wilderness found themselves reduced to such desperate circumstances as are here depicted. Quote, IN THIS WAY THEY PROCEEDED FOR SEVENTEEN MILES OVER A LEVEL plain OF SAND, UNTIL, SEEING A FEW ANTELOPES IN THE DISTANCE, THEY ENCAMPED ON THE MARGIN OF A SMALL STREAM. ALL NOW THAT WERE CAPABLE OF EXERTION, TURNED OUT TO HUNT FOR A MEAL. THEIR EFFORTS WERE FRUITLESS, AND AFTER DARK THEY RETURNED TO THEIR CAMP, FAMISHED ALMOST TO DESPERATION. AS THEY WERE PREPARING FOR THE THIRD TIME TO LIE DOWN TO SLEEP, WITHOUT A MOUTHFUL TO EAT, clerk, one of the Canadians, gaunt and wild with hunger, approached Mr. Stewart with his gun in his hand. It was all in vain, he said, to attempt to proceed any further without food. They had a barren plain before them, three or four days' journey in extent, on which nothing was to be procured. They must all perish before they could get to the end of it. It was better, therefore, that one should die to save the rest." He proposed, therefore, that they should cast lots, adding, as an inducement for Mr. Stewart to assent to the proposition, that he, as leader of the party, should be exempted. Mr. Stewart shuddered at the horrible proposition, and endeavored to reason with the man, but his words were unavailing. At length, snatching up his rifle, he threatened to shoot him on the spot, if he persisted. The famished wretch, dropped on his knees, begged pardon in the most abject terms, and promised, never again, to offend him with such a suggestion. Quiet being restored to the forlorn encampment, each one sought repose. Mr. Stewart, however, was so exhausted by the agitation of the past scene, acting upon his emaciated frame, that he could scarcely crawl to his miserable couch, where, notwithstanding his fatigues, he passed a sleepless night, revolving upon their dreary situation, and the desperate prospect before them. Before daylight the next morning, they were up and on their way. They had nothing to detain them, no breakfast to prepare, and to linger was to perish. They proceeded, however, but slowly, for all were faint and weak. Here and there they passed the skulls and bones of buffaloes, which showed that these animals must have been hunted here during the past season the sight of these bones served only to mock their misery after traveling about nine miles along the plain they ascended a range of hills and had scarcely gone two miles further when to their great joy they discovered an old run-down buffalo bull the laggard probably of some herd that had been hunted and harassed through the mountains they now all stretched themselves out to encompass and make sure of the solitary animal for their lives depended upon their success after considerable trouble and infinite anxiety they at length succeeded in killing him he was instantly flayed and cut up and so ravenous was their hunger that they devoured some of the flesh raw the residue they carried to a brook near by where they encamped lit a fire and began to cook Mr. Stewart was fearful that in their famished state they would eat to excess and injure themselves. He caused a soup to be made of some of the meat, and that each should take a quantity of it as a prelude to his supper. This may have had a beneficial effect, for though they sat up the greater part of the night cooking and cramming, no one suffered any inconvenience. The next morning the feasting was resumed, and about midday, Feeling somewhat recruited and refreshed, they set out on their journey with renovated spirits, shaping their course toward a mountain, the summit of which they saw towering in the east, and near to which they expected to find the headwaters of the Missouri. The next work brought out by Mr. Irving was his Adventures of Captain Bonneville, USA, in the Rocky Mountains of the Far West. This work was digested from the journal of Captain Bonneville, which Irving purchased of him, and which, with illustrations from various other sources, he shaped into this deeply interesting book. Quote, it is, says Chancellor Kent, full of exciting incident, and by reason of Mr. Irving's fine taste and attractive style, possesses the power and the charms of romance. End quote. We have a description of the trapper of the far west as he flourished forty years ago. Quote, Accustomed to live in tents or to bivouac in the open air, he despises the comforts and is impatient of the confinement of the log house. If his meal is not ready in season, he takes his rifle, hies to the forest or prairie, shoots his own game, lights his fire, and cooks his repast. With his horse and his rifle, he is independent of the world and spurns at all restraints. There is perhaps no class of men on the face of the earth who lead a life of more continued exertion, peril, and excitement, and who are more enamored of their occupation than the free trappers of the West. No toil, no danger, no privation can turn the trapper from his pursuit. His passionate excitement at times resembles a mania. In vain May the most vigilant and cruel savages beset his path. In vain may rocks and precipices and wintry torrents oppose his progress. Let but a single track of a beaver meet his eye, and he forgets all danger and defies all difficulties. At times he may be seen, with his traps on his shoulder, buffeting his way across rapid streams, amid floating blocks of ice. At other times he is to be found, with his traps swung on his back, clambering the most rugged mountains, scaling or descending the most frightful precipices, searching, by routes inaccessible to the horse and never before trodden by white man, for springs and lakes unknown to his comrades and where he may meet with his favorite game. Such is the mountaineer, the hardy trapper of the west, and such, as we have slightly sketched it, is the wild Robin Hood kind of life. With all its strange and motley populace now existing in full vigor among the rocky mountains, the American trapper stands by himself and is peerless for the service of the wilderness. Drop him in the midst of a prairie or in the heart of the mountains, and he is never at a loss. He notices every landmark, can retrace his route through the most monotonous plains or the most perplexed labyrinths of the mountains. No danger nor difficulty can appall him, and he scorns to complain under any privation. In fact, no one can cope with him as a stark tramper of the wilderness. End quote. The trapper's Indian wife is also pictured for us. Quote, the free trapper, while a bachelor, has no greater pet than his horse, but the moment he takes a wife, he discovers that he has a still more fanciful, and capricious animal on which to lavish his expenses no sooner does an indian belle experience this promotion than all her notions at once rise and expand to the dignity of her situation and the purse of her lover and his credit into the bargain are tasked to the utmost to fit her out in becoming style the wife of a free trapper to be equipped and arrayed like any ordinary and undistinguished squaw Perish the groveling thought. In the first place, she must have a horse for her own riding, but no jaded, sorry, earth spirited hack, such as is sometimes assigned by an Indian husband for the transportation of his squaw and her papooses. The wife of a free trapper must have the most beautiful animal she can lay her eyes on. And then, as to his decoration, headstall, breastbands, saddle, crupper are lavishly embroidered with beads, and hung with thimbles, hawks-bells, and bunches of ribbons. From each side of the saddle hangs an esquemute, a sort of pocket, in which she bestows the residue of her trinkets and knacks, which cannot be crowded on the decoration of her horse or herself. Over this she folds, with great care, a drapery of scarlet and bright-coloured calicoes, and now considers the caparison of her steed complete. As to her own person— she is even still more extravagant. Her hair, esteemed beautiful in proportion to its length, is carefully plaited, and made to fall with seeming negligence over either breast. Her riding hat is stuck full of party-colored feathers. Her robe, fashioned somewhat after that of the whites, is of red, green, and sometimes of gray cloth, but always of the finest texture that can be procured. Her leggings and moccasins are the most beautiful and expensive workmanship and fitted neatly to the foot and ankle which with the indian woman are generally well formed and delicate then as to jewelry in the way of finger-rings ear-rings necklaces and other female glories nothing within reach of the trapper's means is omitted that can tend to impress the beholder with an idea of the lady's high estate to finish the whole she selects from among her blankets one of glowing colors and throwing it over her shoulders with native grace vaults into the saddle of her gay prancing steed and is ready to follow her mountaineer to the last gasp with love and loyalty we have the curious use of a lasso in the hands of a californian horseman quote, THE LASSO WAS ALSO OF GREAT USE IN FURNISHING THE PUBLIC WITH A FAVORITE, THOUGH BARBAROUS SPORT, THE COMBAT BETWEEN A BEAR AND A WILD BULL. FOR THIS PURPOSE THREE OR FOUR HORSEMEN SALLY FORTH TO SOME WOOD FREQUENTED BY BEARS, AND, DEPOSITING THE CARCASS OF A bullock, HIDE THEMSELVES IN THE VICINITY. THE BEARS ARE SOON ATTRACTED BY THE BAIT. AS SOON AS ONE FIT FOR THEIR PURPOSE MAKES HIS APPEARANCE, THEY RUN OUT and dexterously noose him by either leg after dragging him at full speed until he is fatigued they secure him more effectually and tying him on the carcass of the bullock draw him in triumph to the scene of action by this time he is exasperated to such frenzy that they are sometimes obliged to throw cold water on him to moderate his fury and dangerous would it be for horse and rider were he while in his paroxysm to break his bonds. A wild bull of the fiercest kind, which has been caught and exasperated in the same manner, is now produced, and both animals are turned loose in the arena of a small amphitheatre. The mortal fight begins instantly, and always at first, to the disadvantage of Bruin, fatigued as he is by his previous rough riding. Roused at length by the repeated goring of the bull, he seizes his muzzle with his sharp claws and, clinging to this most sensitive part, causes him to bellow with rage and agony. In his heat and fury, the bull lolls out his tongue. This is easily clutched by the bear. With a desperate effort he overturns his huge antagonist, and then dispatches him without difficulty. End of chapter 29 Recording by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida